Chapter Eight, Part Two of Famous Stories Every Child Should Know. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Famous Stories Every Child Should Know. Edited by Hamilton Wright Maybe. Chapter Eight. The Man Without a Country by Edward Everett Hale Part 2 But that is not the story I started to tell. As the dancing went on, Nolan and our fellows all got at ease, as I said, so much so that it seemed quite natural for him to bow to that splendid Mrs. Graff and say, I hope you have not forgotten me, Miss Rutledge. Shall I have the honour of dancing? He said it so quickly that fellows, who was with him, could not hinder him. She laughed and said, I am not Miss Rutledge any longer, Mr. Nolan, but I will dance all the same. Just nodded to Fellows as if he must leave Mr. Nolan to her and led him off to the place where the dance was forming. Nolan thought he had got his chance. He had known her at Philadelphia and at other places had met her, and this was a godsend. You could not talk in contradances as you could in cotillions or even in the pauses of waltzing. But there were chances for tongues and sounds, as well as for eyes and blushes. He began with her travels, and Europe, and Vesuvius, and the French, and then, when they had worked down and had that long talking time at the bottom of the set, he said boldly, a little pale, she said, as she told me the story years after, And what do you hear from home, Mrs. Graff? And that splendid creature looked through him. Jove, how she must have looked through him home mr nolan i thought you were the man who never wanted to hear of home again and she walked directly up the deck to her husband and left poor nolan alone as he always was he did not dance again i cannot give any history of him in order nobody can now and indeed i am trying not to these are the traditions which i sought out as i believe them from the myths which have been told about this man for forty years the lies that have been told about him are legion. The fellows used to say he was the Iron Mask, and poor George Pons went to his grave in the belief that this was the author of Junius, who was being punished for his celebrated libel on Thomas Jefferson. Pons was not very strong in the historical line. A happier story than either of these I have told is of the war. That came along soon after. I have heard this affair told in three or four ways, and indeed it may have happened more than once, but which ship it was on I cannot tell. However, in one at least of the great frigate duels with the English, in which the navy was really baptized, it happened that a round shot from the enemy entered one of our ports square and took right down the officer of the gun himself, and almost every man of the gun's crew. Now you may say what you choose about courage, but that is not a nice thing to see. But as the men who were not killed picked themselves up, and as they and the surgeon's people were carrying off the bodies, there appeared Nolan, in his shirt-sleeves, with the rammer in his hand, and, just as if he had been an officer, told them off with authority, who should go to the cockpit with the wounded men, who should stay with him, perfectly cheery, and with that way which makes men feel sure all is right and is going to be right and he finished loading his gun with his own hands aimed it and bade the men fire and there he stayed 
captain of that gun keeping those fellows in spirits till the enemy struck sitting on the carriage while the gun was cooling though he was exposed all the time showing them easier ways to handle heavy shot making the raw hands laugh at their own blunders and when the gun cooled again getting it loaded and fired twice as often as any other gun on the ship the captain walked forward by way of encouraging the men and nolan touched his hat and said i'm showing them how we do this in the artillery sir and this is the part of the story where all the legends agree the commodore said i see you do and i thank you sir and i shall never forget this day sir and you never shall sir and after the whole thing was over and he had the englishman's sword in the midst of the state and ceremony of the quarter-deck he said where is mr nolan ask mr nolan to come here and when nolan came he said mr nolan we are all very grateful to you to-day you are one of us to-day you will be named in the dispatches and then the old man took off his own sword of ceremony and gave it to nolan and made him put it on the man told me this who saw it nolan cried like a baby and well he might he had not worn a sword since that infernal day at fort adams but always afterwards on occasion of ceremony he wore that quaint old french sword of the commodore's the captain did mention him in dispatches it was always said he asked that he might be pardoned he wrote a special letter to the secretary of war but nothing ever came of it as i said that was about the time when they began to ignore the whole transaction at washington and when nolan's imprisonment began to carry itself on because there was nobody to stop it without any new orders from home i have heard it said that he was with porter when he took possession of the nukahiwa islands not this porter you know but old porter his father essex porter that is the old essex porter not this essex as an artillery officer who had seen service in the west nolan knew more about fortifications embrasures ravelins stockades and all that than any of them did and he worked with a right good will in fixing that battery all right i have always said that it was a pity porter did not leave him in command there with gamble that would have settled all the question about his punishment we should have kept the islands and at this moment we should have had one station in the pacific ocean our french friends too when they wanted this little watering place could have found it was occupied but madison and the virginians of course flung all that away all that was near fifty years ago if nolan was thirty then he must have been near eighty when he died he looked sixty when he was forty but he never seemed to change a hair afterwards as i imagine his life from what i have seen and heard of it he must have been in every sea and yet almost never on land he must have known in a formal way more officers in our service than any man living knows he told me once with a grave smile that no man in the world lived so methodical a life as he you know the boys say i am the iron mask and you know how busy he was he said it did not do for any one to try to read all the time more than to do anything else all the time and that he used to read just five hours a day then he said i keep up my notebooks writing in them at such and such hours from what i have been reading and i include in these my scrapbooks these were very curious indeed he had six or eight of different subjects there was one of history one of natural science one which he called odds and ends but they were not merely books of extracts from newspapers 
They had bits of plants and ribbons, shells tied on, and carved scraps of bone and wood, which he had taught the men to cut for him, and they were beautifully illustrated. He drew admirably. He had some of the funniest drawings there, and some of the most pathetic that I have ever seen in my life. I wonder who will have Nolan's scrapbooks. Well, he said his reading and his notes were his profession, and that they took five hours and two hours respectively of each day. Then, said he, every man should have a diversion as well as a profession. My natural history is my diversion. That took two hours a day more. The men used to bring him birds and fish, but on a long cruise he had to satisfy himself with centipedes and cockroaches and such small game. He was the only naturalist I ever met who knew anything about the habits of the housefly and the mosquito. All those people can tell you whether they are Lepidoptera or Steptopotera, but as for telling you how you can get rid of them, or how they get away from you when you strike them, why Linares knew as little of that as John Foy the idiot did. These nine hours made Nolan's regular daily occupation. The rest of the time he talked or walked. Till he grew very old, he went aloft a great deal. He always kept up his exercise, and I never heard that he was ill. If any other man was ill, he was the kindest nurse in the world, and he knew more than half the surgeons do. Then if anybody was sick or died, or if the captain wanted him to, on any other occasion, he was always ready to read prayers. I have said that he read beautifully. My own acquaintance with Philip Nolan began six or eight years after the English war, on my first voyage after I was appointed a midshipman. It was in the first days after our slave trade treaty, while the reigning house, which was still the house of Virginia, had still a sort of sentimentalism about the suppression of the horrors of the Middle Passage, and something was sometimes done that way. We were in the South Atlantic on that business. From the time I joined, I believe I thought Nolan was a sort of lay chaplain, a chaplain with a blue coat. I never asked about him. Everything in the ship was strange to me. I knew it was green to ask questions, and I suppose I thought there was a plain buttons on every ship. We had him to dine in our mess once a week, and the caution was given that on that day nothing was to be said about home. But if they had told us not to say anything about the planet Mars or the Book of Deuteronomy, I should not have asked why. There were a great many things which seemed to me to have as little reason. I first came to understand anything about the man without a country one day when we overhauled a dirty little schooner which had slaves on board. An officer was sent to take charge of her, and after a few minutes he sent back his boat to ask that someone might be sent to him who could speak Portuguese. We were all looking over the rail when the message came, and we all wished we could interpret, when the captain asked who spoke Portuguese. But none of the officers did, and just as the captain was sending forward to ask if any of the people could, Nolan stepped out and said he should be glad to interpret, if the captain wished, as he understood the language. The captain thanked him, fitted out another boat with him, and in this boat it was my luck to go. When we got there, it was such a scene as you seldom see, and never want to, nastiness beyond account, and chaos run loose in the midst of the nastiness. There were not a great many of the negroes, but by way of making what there were understand that they were free, 
Vaughan had had their handcuffs and ankle cuffs knocked off, and, for convenience's sake, was putting them upon the rascals of the schooner's crew. The negroes were, most of them, out of the hold and swarming all round the dirty deck, with a central throng surrounding Vaughan and addressing him in every dialect and patois of a dialect, from the Zulu clique up to the Parisian of Beled el Jarid. As we came on deck, Vaughan looked down from a hogshead on which he had mounted in desperation, and said, For God's sake, is there anybody who can make these wretches understand something? The men gave them rum, and that did not quiet them. I knocked that big fellow down twice, and that did not soothe them. And then I talked Choctaw to all of them, and I'll be hanged if they understood that as well as they understood the English. Nolan said he could speak Portuguese, and one or two fine-looking crewmen were dragged out, who, as it had been found already, had worked for the Portuguese on the coast at Fernando Po. Tell them they are free, said Vaughan, and tell them that these rascals are to be hanged as soon as we can get rope enough. Nolan put that into Spanish, that is, he explained it in such Portuguese as the crewmen could understand, and they in turn to such of the negroes as could understand them. Then there was such a yell of delight, clinching of fists, leaping and dancing, kissing of Nolan's feet, and a general rush made to the hogshead by way of spontaneous worship of Vaughan, as the deus ex machina of the occasion. Tell them, said Vaughan, well pleased, that I will take them all to Cape Palmas. This did not answer so well. Cape Palmas was practically as far from the homes of most of them as New Orleans or Rio Janeiro was. That is, they would be eternally separated from home there. And their interpreters, as we could understand, instantly said, Ah, no, Palmas, and began to propose infinite other expedients in most voluble language. Vaughan was rather disappointed at this result of his liberality, and asked Nolan eagerly what they had said. The drops stood on poor Nolan's white forehead as he hushed the men down and said, He says, not Palmas, he says, take us home, take us to our own country, take us to our own house, take us to our own pickaninnies and our own women. He says he has an old father and mother who will die if they do not see him, and this one says he left his people all sick and paddled down to Fernando to beg the white doctor to come and help them, and that these devils caught him in the bay just in sight of home, and that he has never seen anybody from home since then. And this one says, choked out Nolan, that he has not heard a word from his home in six months, while he has been locked up in an infernal barracoon. Vaughan always said he grew grey himself while Nolan struggled through this interpretation. I, who did not understand anything of the passion involved in it, saw that the very elements were melting with fervent heat, and that something was to pay somewhere. Even the negroes themselves stopped howling as they saw Nolan's agony, and Vaughan's almost equal agony and sympathy. As quick as he could get words, he said, Tell them yes, yes, yes. Tell them they should go to the mountains of the moon if they will. If I sail the schooner through the great white desert, they shall go home. And after some fashion, Nolan said so. And then they all fell to kissing him again, and wanting to rub his nose with theirs. But he could not stand it long, and getting Vaughan to say he might go back, he beckoned me down into the boat. As we lay back in the stern sheets, and the men gave way, he said to me, Youngster, let that show you what it is to be without a family, without a home, and without a country, 
and if you are ever tempted to say a word or to do a thing that shall put a bar between you and your family your home and your country pray god in his mercy to take you that instant home to his own sweet heaven stick by your family boy forget you have a self while you do everything for them think of your home boy write and send and talk about it let it be nearer and nearer to your thought the farther you have to travel from it and rush back to it when you are free as that poor black slave is doing now and for your country boy and the words rattled in his throat and for that flag he pointed to the ship never dream a dream but of serving her as she bids you though the service carry you through a thousand hells no matter what happens to you no matter who flatters you or who abuses you never look at another flag never let a night pass but that you pray god to bless that flag remember boy that behind all these men you have to do with behind officers and government and people even there is the country herself your country and that you belong to her as you belong to your own mother stand by her boy as you would stand by your mother if those devils there had got hold of her today i was frightened to death by his calm hard passion but i blundered out that i would by all that was holy and that i had never thought of doing anything else he hardly seemed to hear me but he did almost in a whisper say oh if anybody had said so to me when i was of your age i think it was this half confidence of his which i never abused for i never told this story till now which afterwards made us great friends he was very kind to me often he sat up or even got up at night to walk the deck with me when it was my watch he explained to me a great deal of my mathematics and i owe to him my taste for mathematics he lent me his books and helped me about my reading he never alluded so directly to his story again but from one and another officer i have learned in thirty years what i am telling when we parted from him in st thomas harbour at the end of our cruise i was more sorry than i can tell i was very glad to meet him again in eighteen thirty and later in life when i thought i had some influence in washington i moved heaven and earth to have him discharged but it was like getting a ghost out of prison they pretended there was no such man and never was such a man they will say so at the department now perhaps they do not know it will not be the first thing in the service of which the department appears to know nothing end of chapter eight part two